Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I don't even think of Christmas without Ace Collins. He's become such a part of the tradition here with me at Faith Radio that his stories behind the great traditions of Christmas is something in July I can start looking forward to because his stories are amazing. And it does help us understand this beautiful season as we celebrate the birth of Christ. There's so many rich traditions that we don't know a lot about, but Ace will sort that all out for us today. He is a consummate storyteller and author of over 100 books, and I've already booked him twice for the month of December. It makes me so happy he said yes to both opportunities, and he's with us today. Ace, welcome. Hey, the music when it plays now so familiar to me, I feel like I'm going home. I mean, the, the theme music to your to your program. Fantastic. I, I recognize it almost as much as I do all the Christmas carols I get to talk about every year. So, I mean... Yeah, yeah, it's it feels like I'm home. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, you know, when you agreed to come on December 2nd, I thought, I bet there'll be nice little s- snow on the pine trees and icicles hanging. Not the case here in Minnesota. It was almost 50 here today. It was almost, it was 72 <laughs> here in Arkansas. Today, so, I mean, and that's that's terribly warm for us this time of year as well. Yeah. So, uh, well, yeah, yeah, I have a feeling the cold weather will eventually sink yeah, in. Yeah, you're so correct. Now, I want to talk about the stories behind the great traditions of Christmas. I want to talk about the content in the book. But before we do that, I want you to tell our uh, audience how this book got its landing gear. It didn't happen overnight. No, it didn't. Uh, the stories behind the great uh, w- w- later on this this. Uh, in the month of December, we're going to be talking about the stories behind the best love songs of Christmas. And that was the first book in this uh, Christmas series. And over a 10-year period of time, I pitched that thing constantly. And it was rejected by 27 different publishers. Four or five publishers, you know, actually had to reject it twice for me to get to 27. I mean, you know, that was, uh, (laughs) nobody wanted it because they told me there just wasn't a large enough selling time period for a book like that to work. And besides, who wanted to know the stories behind Christmas carols and Christmas songs? Well, eventually, you know, Zondervan, which is a HarperCollins imprint, took a chance on it, thanks to Cindy Lambert, pitching it and pitching it and pitching it. And the book literally hit bestseller charts across the globe and went into multiple printings and printed in all kinds of different languages. And that's when they came back to me and said, have you thought about doing the... Um, Stories behind the great tradition of Christmas. And I, I said, mm. not only have I thought about it, doing it, I've got most of the research done already. And so, you know, 11% of my content, you mentioned I've written 100 books that have come out now. And and 11% of those books are Christmas books, be they two novels or or a situation where you have nine nonfiction books on Christmas. Um, the publisher jokingly refers to me as Doc Holiday now. And, and I, I kind of laugh at that. And I'll take that as a compliment, but I I just love, be it here or on the BBC or the Irish Radio Network or all the different places that have me, I love talking about the very special meaning behind the elements of Christmas that we all see, but we really don't know much about. You know, I was explaining on air earlier today that 
you know, you look at these multicolored Christmas lights. Well, if you go back two or 300 years before there were lights, people were putting these colors on trees as well. But the colors had particular meaning, like purple meant royalty, you know, for for Christ, who, you know, who was, you know, king of kings. The the white or the yellow light stood uh, for everlasting life and purity. The blue stood for love. The red stood for the blood that Christ shed on the on the cross, you know, and and um, the green stood for everlasting life because a green plant lived and thrived in the wintertime when all of the others lost their leaves. And and all of these things tie into the various traditions of Christmas, and they make it much more special when you actually know the meaning behind them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first thing that hits my head today that I, I, I we got to talk first about this, because this is the one that I think will blow people away the most. Um, you know, the kissing plant, mistletoe. Now, a lot of Christians run from that plant because they think, oh my gosh, look at what this is doing, without realizing that five, 600 years ago, the early missionaries who were reaching the, the Celts, the Druids and the Vikings, were looking at the way that these people looked at mistletoe. And they were fascinated by mistletoe plants because they, they grew out of what looked like dead wood when all the leaves had fallen off the trees. And these people even had a proclamation or an understanding, if you will, amongst their, their tribes that if two warring tribes met in a forest and looked up and saw mistletoe plants, they would have to find a way to reach a peace agreement. Well, these brilliant early missionaries took that plant off that tree and explained the following. The green leaves on this plant represent everlasting life, a life that doesn't go away even after you are dead. It's a, it's a faith that continues to sustain you as the evergreen grows in the wintertime, even through the toughest days of your life. The white berries represent the purity of Christ. The red berries represent the blood of Christ. The fact it's growing from what looks like a dead piece of wood represents the crucifixion of Christ. And the fact that you believe it's it's a peace plant, well, the P- Prince of Peace was Jesus Christ himself. And if you accept him, you'll have peace in your heart and have the faith to sustain you through the toughest winters. Well, they when they became Christians, they took this to heart, and the mistletoe plant was tacked over doors to signify that these people were Christian. It was put over baby cribs to remind them to pray for their children, and something else happened. They wanted their bride and grooms to actually have faith and sustain their faith that they had learned as children and bring that faith to their union in marriage. So they put the mistletoe plant over the top of the bride and groom as they got married. And what happens at the end of marriage ceremonies now, and even three and four and five and 600 years ago, the bride and groom kiss. Well, today we remember that kiss and have forgotten all of the other elements that the missionary used that made the missionary plant a track for people who couldn't even read a word. And it fully explained faith and what faith could mean to these people's lives. You know, Ace, when you were talking about the publisher almost being critical of having a short selling season, I would almost disagree. I think this is an evangelical tool. This is a way to share your faith, not only to 
give as a gift, but to have a copy on your coffee table as you bring out your Christmas decorations. It should be part of your Christmas decorations. And this table, this book is on the table. And you can, if someone says, tell me about this book, you can tell one of these powerful stories behind the great traditions of Christmas. Well, you you just mentioned something that I think is incredibly uh, important here, too. If you look at Hollywood films from the 1930s, Christmas started about a week. The Christmas holidays really started about a week before Christmas. That's when stores really decorated. When you, you, you put trees up on Christmas Eve, it wasn't this really huge window we have for celebrating Christmas now. Um, and what changed that was World War II uh, when the President Roosevelt asked stores to start decorating earlier so that people could buy Christmas presents for GIs who were overseas and that those Christmas presents could be delivered to them in time for them to have a gift at Christmas. That enlarged the the amount of time that we spent looking at Christmas, celebrating Christmas, and having Christmas music and Christmas traditions come out of the closet, if you will. Well, we should be grateful for that because that has continued. Mm-hmm. And, and what it is, what has happened is now we have a much larger window than our great-grandparents or our grandparents had to talk about Christmas. The other thing that we need to celebrate is that Christmas is a holiday everywhere. It's a, it's a holiday in, in China and in Japan and throughout the world. And people say, well, that's a secular holiday. No, it's a gift. It's a holiday at all, because we can explain that Christmas means worship Christ, Christmas, that the different elements of that they're celebrating at Christmas are really tied back to a child being born to over 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. It gives us an opportunity, if we approach it properly, to use the secularization of Christmas, the commercialization of Christmas, whatever you want to call it, as an opportunity for us to share what Christmas really is. Yeah, let's take advantage of this great opportunity. Mm-hmm. It's a gift from God. It don't, is a gift, yeah. So don't, 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 don't tear it apart. I, one of the things I get really kind of miffed and upset with people about is they go crazy over Xmas. Excuse me, for a thousand years, that's how the church spelled Christmas. <laughs> Ink was very expensive. Paper was rare. You shortened whatever you could. So in the, in a 350 A.D. version of Christmas, if you saw it written out, it was normally written out X-M-A-S. Why? Because X was the first letter in Christ's name in the Greek alphabet. And people understood that, and they actually knew when they saw an X, it stood for Christ. They, When they saw M-A-S, it stood for worship. Amen. Therefore, you can even take somebody putting Xmas in their window and say, hey, do you know what that really means? Paul and Timothy would have just, you know, would have come in and hugged you for putting for putting Xmas up because that means worship Christ. <laughs> and, 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 and so it's a situation where all of these different things are very important. I had a, I was on a two-hour show in Colorado not long ago, and a guy totally blew me away with the call-in show with the first question. He said, you know, all of these traditions, you know, uh, you know, were born in, in heathen cultures. We shouldn't have allowed them in the church to begin with. And I said, well, not all of them. I said, gifts were part of the first Christmas. I said, you know, you can trace that back. But I said, yeah, initially speaking, trees, greenery, and everything else were used by different religions and by people from different things. But I said, then I asked him, I said, were you always a Christian? And he said, no, I became a Christian when I was 15 years old. And I said, should we kick you out of the church because you had 15 years of heathen roots? 
And he didn't answer. And I said, you see, all of these traditions we celebrate may have been born not being Christian, but when these people became Christians, like the mistletoe plant, they they suddenly transformed these images that were from their life into things that represented their faith and represented Christmas to them. And that cultural transformation is not any different than the transformation each of us has when we move from a non-Christian belief into a Christian belief. And many of the things that we treasured as non-Christians now take on new meetings as we emphasize the impact of religion on mm-hmm. those. All right, Ace, let me take a little break. When I come back, I want to ask you about th- the tradition of Advent. We've been uh, mm-hmm. talking about Advent a lot here at Faith Radio. One of our colleagues uh, wrote a book on it, Prepare Your Heart, and everyone's working on preparing their heart. I want to hear what the tradition is on Advent. We'll take a short break. Ace Collins is my guest. His book is Stories Behind the Great Traditions of Christmas. listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold, Faith, Hope, and Clarity, in a special repeat performance. We are talking about the great traditions of Christmas and the stories behind the great traditions. My guest is Ace Collins. He's written a fantastic book. This is a book you would love having on your coffee table after you've read it or maybe given it as a gift, just to have around. Because when somebody says, what is that book about? Oh, you're going to have some great stories to tell about the great traditions of Christmas. And one of them is Advent. And Ace, I'd love for you to tell us about Advent. Well, most people know what Advent is to a certain degree. They may not know the meaning of the word, which is the coming. Uh, It it was celebrated over a thousand years ago in three different ways. And and 1,500 years, if you want to go back further than that, First of all, you were supposed to look forward to the coming of Jesus on earth. So that is the the coming of the babe in the manger, you know, but they emphasized also what that coming meant to the world. So the second thing to look at was what Jesus coming on earth as a man meant to the world, how it changed history, how it changed people's lives. And the third thing they looked at was looking forward to Jesus returning. So you had three different elements that were looked looked at for over a thousand years, and they were taught that way. Uh, more recently, it has become more looking forward to what the birth in Bethlehem meant, where we dwell more on the baby Jesus and a lot less on the man Jesus, who basically gave us the lessons, taught us how to live, and laid down his life for us. So Advent in that respect has changed somewhat. Um, there is no doubt in my mind that some of the traditions that we that we celebrate and love today uh, can be directly tied to people's thinking about Advent. One would be Martin Luther in the weeks before Christmas, walking home one night, looking up in the sky, seeing the stars and uh, the moon, and being inspired to go home to his children and tie a candle holder onto a tree and light that candle and tell his children, this candle represents the light that came into a dark world when Christ was born. Well, we've lit candles at Advent as well to remind us of that fact. And 
we turn on the lights on the Christmas tree and we may not realize that is what the beginnings of turning on lights on Christmas tree were a part of Advent, remembering the birth and the light that came with that birth. So you can't really look at the various elements of of the way that we we remember Christmas without having Advent be a theme through almost all of them, uh, be it the wreaths, be it the trees, be it the, the lights, uh, be it in the ornaments, the nativity scenes. All of them are, come, are tied to us remembering the coming of the babe in the manger. I do think, though, that that original emphasis also on what Jesus meant to the history of the world uh, is something that we might want to start including in our modern Advent as well, because that opens the door once again as people look at the historical importance of Jesus on the planet and on the people, opens up the door for us to point out the the Son of God was this historical figure. Mm-hmm. Ace Collins is my guest. We're talking about the stories behind the great traditions of Christmas. And one of my favorite things to talk to you about is something that I think stresses a lot of other people out, which is, oh, we got to get a Christmas card out this year. And for yeah. you, Christmas cards are something distinctly different. And your approach to it is really admirable. I love what you do. But I also want to know about the tradition of Christmas cards. Okay, and let's go back to Sir Henry Cole in, in England. And England had just been celebrating Christmas for about 20 years or so uh, in 1843, you know, maybe maybe even 10 years. Uh, the English people had started adopting this family Christmas. Before that, Christmas was kind of Mardi Gras on steroids. It was a time of drinking and partying. It wasn't a time of worship. And, you know, Sir Henry Cole was a very busy man. He had all these different jobs and all these different important positions, and he got lots of mail, and he found himself around Christmas time not being able to answer his mail. So he went to a local print shop. He found a picture of a Victorian family around a table eating a Christmas dinner. He had that printed on a thousand cards, and he sent those cards out to his friends as a way of answering the mail that he hadn't been able to keep up with. They were so impressed that the next year, a lot of them went out and bought cards that looked just like that from the same printer. And thus, the tradition of sending out Christmas greeting cards happened. It really didn't take off for another 50 or 60 years when two things happened. One was an economical post office, and the, um, so delivery was much cheaper. You could mail for a penny back in the late 1800s. You could mail cards. The other thing that made it take off was the new developments in printing opened up where you could actually have cards that could be purchased by the middle class. And when the middle class was able to afford cards, they started sending them out. Initially speaking, if you look at my cards that my grandmother got, and I have I have many, many of those, the themes were, were, were very interesting on those cards that were sent in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, very few of them, by the way, of the cards that I have found historically actually said Merry Christmas. They said Happy Holidays, Seasons Greetings, and other things because those cards were the only way these people had of communicating with each other. And they were covering Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's basically <laughs> all in one yeah. in one card there because they couldn't just pick up their cell phone or send a text right. or make a call going Happy New Year. So, so Season Greeting, Glad Tidings, those kind of things were sent in a lot of cards. And, and so... 
And my, by the way, my grandmother would have gotten cards from only Christian friends, so these people weren't being anti-Christian sending that out. That would have never entered their head. They were simply remembering somebody they loved and wanting to find out. In those cards, most people wrote long notes, uh, little letters, if you will, catching people up on what was going on. What I do with cards today is I write two or three or four or five lines in each one that I send out, and I send out about 200 cards every year because the people I'm sending cards to mean something to me. Uh, they are there are people I interact with sometimes on a daily basis. Sometimes they, they've been teachers and other people who have meant something to with me in the past, and I use those cards as thank you notes. I actually thank them for being a mentor, thank them for being a spiritual guide, thank them for some little little uh, thing that they did this year that made the world a better place, thank them for their kindness. It doesn't take very long to actually add those little personal messages to those particular people and remind them of how much they have meant to your life. And I think by doing so, you encourage them that they ha that touching others has great value and encourages them to continue to touch people uh, in their daily walk. And I think a lot of people don't get thank yous for the incredible things they do for us. And therefore, putting a thank you note as a part of your Christmas card kind of opens up the door for people to realize that they have been remembered and what they have done has been appreciated. Mm -hmm. Ace, how many cards do you send out, roughly? About 200. 200. Now, yeah. um, I don't want to scare people, but how much time, if you're doing handwritten, thoughtful notes in all these 200, what kind of a time project is that? Uh, the, the writing on the cards themselves probably takes a minute or two each card. Okay. So, you know, you're looking, you're looking at, uh, half days worth of work. Uh, okay. You know, I, well, you're I a writer down, too. You've written a hundred books, yeah. so I guess you're good yeah, at it. Yeah. And, so. and, and I hope that they can read them because I'm handwriting these and my handwriting is not the, not the best. It wasn't the best when I was, when I was in school, it's, it's, it's even worse now because I write less with my hands than I used to. But I, I think it's really important. And, and I look back at some of the cards that were my grandmother's that I happened to inherit and, and it's fun for me to read notes about people catching up on lives and, and having those memories come to life, even these, though I don't know a lot of those people. Yeah. And I, I think these people will treasure what you say and hold on to your cards uh, because their card, those notes will mean something to them. Boy, anytime you see someone's personal penmanship, it gets your attention. It does. Yeah. And anytime you get a thank you from somebody you treasure it because there's not many handwritten thank you notes that go out anymore. Imagine getting the uh, handwritten thank you note that also gets you Christmas greetings. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good. All right, we'll take a little break. Ace Collins is my guest. He's written a lot of books. Uh, this one is on the stories behind the great traditions of Christmas. I've got a whole bunch more traditions I'm going to ask him about when we come back. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. I 
I am with Ace Collins. He's written a book called Stories Behind the Great Traditions of Christmas. It's a great book, and I would recommend you checking it out. So, Ace, if you would, talk about Christmas trees. Is that, uh, is that a pagan idea, or where did, where did that come, Christmas trees come from? Well, originally, you know, uh, long before Christ walked the earth, trees were being brought inside uh, and decorated for a wide variety of reasons and a wide variety of different cultures. Um, they were brought into the church originally not as Christmas trees, but as what they called creation trees, uh, because the church would have a lot of different pageants in, in, in the Middle and Dark Ages uh, to help teach children about Christ and about Christian life and about biblical history. And so kids would play various parts, and they would bring in an evergreen tree, Ironically enough, for the tree in the Garden of Eden and tie fruit on it and have one of the kids pick the fruit playing, you know, playing Eve and give it to Adam. And and so even before they were used as Christmas trees, the church was bringing them in for uh, different little plays and pageants to teach biblical history. Um, Bartholomew was a missionary who gets credited a lot. If he was the first one, I don't know of using the Christmas, using an evergreen tree as something other than just a creation tree. And he would point to the evergreen tree with its triangular shape and use it as an example as the Father, Son, the Holy Ghost, the Trinity. Hmm. He would also develop it into a place and notice that the tree continues to thrive in the wintertime and talk about the fact that if you become uh, a Christian, you won't die, you will have everlasting life. And then it was taken and and used in that way for probably four or five hundred years without being associated with Christmas. And then in Latvia, uh, about eh, six, seven hundred years ago, it was brought inside at Christmas time and decorations were hung on to it as a way to celebrate uh, the person who brought us everlasting life. Um, a lot of the, I mentioned colors earlier, a lot of the little homemade ornaments that were put on that tree represented the various colors that Christians uh, felt symbolically meant things like love, eternal life, uh, purity, sacrifice. Ironically enough, in Latvia, they hung trees upside down from the ceiling. Um, I've never found out why, but my theory is that homes were very small, and if you put a tree in a small floor, it took up almost probably a third of the room in your living room or in your main room of your house, and if you hung it from the ceiling, you had a lot more floor room. But uh, when that tradition made its way to the main part of Europe, uh, the French turned it right side up, and we've been having it right side up ever since. It was certainly an established Christian tradition to have a tree in Martin Luther's time because he already had one on the ground. He didn't invent it, and it was an accepted policy during that time. Uh, Christmas trees had been in churches for, by the time Martin Luther did it, for two or three hundred years. Churches would actually set up Christmas trees as a part of, of celebrating the season and have various ornaments. Normally, uh, a lot of the ornaments on Christmas trees were part of the nativity scene, be it a star, an angel, or, or whatever that mm-hmm. was over the nativity scene that was at the bottom of the tree. Um, trees really took off in the United States in the 1860s, 1870s, and 1880s. As a matter of fact, the very first tree stand, or if you will, tree lot, was called was called Cars Lot. And so long before we had 
used car lots, we had trees that were cut down and a man named Carr sold them in New York City. And so Carr gets credited with the bringing the trees in from the country and selling them to city folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and trees, therefore, have become an important part of that. But it, by the early 1900s, if you were wealthy by the by the late 1800s, you could put lights on trees. But tree, tree lights, usually in strands of either seven uh, or two strands hooked together, 14 were put on trees in the early 1900s. Ornaments, though, date back to uh, Germany uh, five, six hundred years ago, and they're almost glass ornaments. In my house right now, I'm looking at a tree with tinsel and old-fashioned looking lights, even though they're LED lights and old Christmas cards and all pre-World War II ornaments or pre-1945 ornaments. So the tree in my office looks like a tree that you would have had during World War II, and it's decorated in that way. The packages underneath the tree are actually wrapped in paper that is vintage World War II paper, which most of the paper sold in World War II was red, white, and blue here in the United States. And, and so with various kind of patriotic themes on it, stars and other things on it, and that's the way uh, this particular tree, we have many trees in our house, is decorated. And I look back at it and I, re- I realize, okay, this would have been a, the way that a tree would have looked to the people who who may have gotten a furlough to come home during World War II in the midst of the war. And... and uh, I like to remember that that history, uh, and 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 in, think about well, this is the, what my the tree that my grandfather pictured in his head when he was serving in the United States Navy in World War II, mm-hmm. and and so this thing. So trees have been essential, but once again, it goes back trees, reefs, and everything else go back to the evergreen. Um, these early Christians looked upon it with reverence because it represented faith. You know, it did not. Unlike the regular trees that all went away when the weather got harsh and things got tough and the leaves weren't there anymore and they were just bare wood, these trees, the holly reef and others, they continued to thrive. And they taught time and time again, if you have faith in Jesus, you can survive the hard times. That faith will still be there when everything else has gone away. And and so these people thought of that tree representing uh, the faith that they needed to make it through the tough times in life, including those brutal winters that they had up north. Wow. Thank you for that, Ace. Ace Collins is my guest. Stories behind the great traditions of Christmas. I always love getting December started talking to Ace. And one of the um, stories I love, Ace, is the tradition behind candy canes. I don't remember oh. exactly, but were, were they invented by a dentist looking for business? No, no, okay. they weren't. All right. <laughs> no, that would that would have been probably a good career move on. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you if Stick you think sugar. about it, because you know, candy canes do have that kind of impact. They 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 do have a way of pulling out fillings. <laughs> uh, candy canes can be traced back to 1670. Um, there was a choir master at a Cologne cathedral that had a problem. Well, by the way, people think the problems started in the 50s with kids showing up and not behaving in church. Uh, no, no. In, in this choir master in this cathedral in 1670 had the same problem. He had a children's choir, and the children's choir sang at the first part of the service in the Christmas Eve services, and then they sat there for the rest of the service, and they were doing it each and every year, passing notes, hitting each other, you know, doing all <laughs> kinds of things to aggravate the people in front of them, popping them in the head or pulling a pigtail or Sounds doing like all fun. this other stuff. Yeah, And this choir master had an idea. He would keep them quiet by giving them candy. But if the candy had to last, so he went to a local candy shop 
and found these hard candy canes. And, and they were just candy sticks at the time. But he also knew that the priest and the congregation were not going to be happy with him giving can- candy to kids just to shut them up and make them behave. <laughs> so he had to come up with a reason for it. So he had the candy maker make them in the shape of a cane. And he, he handed these children this cane and said, this white cane represents the good shepherd in the Bible. And he did, the, he did the whole Bible verse around it. And he said, I want you to remember this. And when the people heard that he had done this, they couldn't get mad when they saw up in the, this choir loft, off to the right, a bunch of kids licking on candy canes being quiet. <laughs> and so he figured out a way to do that. These were the shepherds also that came to see Jesus. He taught a Christmas story. Well... In England, when when Oliver Corn, Cornwell outlawed Christmas, members of, of faith would actually hand each other's candy canes to represent their faith and sharing their faith with others. And then uh, just before the Civil War, a German-Swedish in, in, immigrant in the United States, August Imgrade was, Imgrard was his name, uh, began to use candy canes as ornaments. You would hook them over the tree, and this time it wasn't a good shepherd shaft. You would turn it upside down, and it would be a J for the first letter in Jesus' name. And after that, a a, a man in Albany, Georgia, named Bob McCormick— by the way, if you look at Christmas cards, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but if you look at Christmas cards— from the middle of the 1800s, and you look at them, the candy canes that are on them are all white. Because, in, you know, a man named Bob McCormick in uh, Albany, Georgia, Georgia, found a way to hand twist colors onto canes in a machinery process. And it, they were, he was able to do that very, very cheaply. And he was a Christian, and he put three stripes on the candy canes. They were red. They represented the blood of Christ, and they also represented the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. The white, he said, represented the purity of Christ. He did this because his his brother was a priest, and he gave him to the priest to hang it, to basically create uh, a way to hand these out to the children in the priest church. And that, that small tradition and that painted candy cane spread across the United States, and for many, many years was actually used as a teaching tool in churches to remind children of Jesus, his sacrifice, his purity, and his love for them. It's amazing. Um, Ace, I am thinking of a story that I've heard from you, and it involves a woman, a mother, who is dying. Okay. You're going to have to give me a little more. Come on. Come on. All right. Because I'm lost right now. Yeah. Well, um, he, I think the dad illustrated a book. And that oh, was yes. going to be okay. the gift yeah. to the kids. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're, you're looking at a, a song story now that is such an important, important song oh, story. I jumped and, books, and, didn't I? You jumped books, and I'm going to. I'll talk about that. All you know, you're, I was thinking you're thinking of a tradition. You're thinking of a song, and of course, for a song, I know exactly what you're. Oh, about. yeah. Okay, so I jumped books. Let's, on let's you. go back. Let's go back to Chicago right in, during the Depression, and a man named Bob May, who was working in a for a department store chain. Um as a copywriter, uh, had his heart broken one December morning or afternoon, actually, when 
His daughter climbed up in his lap, pushed the newspaper away that he was reading and said, why can't my mommy be like all the other mommies in the world? And she asked her dad that. And, and Bob may realize that this four-year-old girl, Barbara, uh, had a mother who had been fighting cancer for three years. And, and so she didn't have the energy to read to her child or play with her child or take her child shopping or to church or even to the park. And the little girl felt cheated because she knew what the other children's mothers were like. Well, Bob May wrote a little story that pointed out the, the mother's personality in a very, very unique way. He put that mother's personality into a little creature and that creature, therefore, had the mother's personality that Barbara didn't know. Barbara asked for the story the next night, the next night. And Bob, who spent all his money fighting his wife's cancer and didn't have enough money to buy his daughter a gift, made a homemade book drawing pictures and everything else for this child. And that homemade book became the treasured present on Christmas morning. But people weren't coming by the house to celebrate Christmas. They were coming by the house to express their condolences because Bob May's wife had passed away. This child, though, was so enthralled with her book that she showed it to everyone. And, and one of the people she showed it to was a co-worker of Bob's. And this co-worker said, you need to read this at the company New Year's Eve party. Bob May, 1938, read this story at the company New Year's Eve party. And the CEO of the company was so impressed, he bought, he paid Bob really good money to get possession of the, the words and the pictures. And that money helped Bob pay off the medical debts and moved he and Barbara to a nicer part of town. Well, for the next seven or eight years, every child that sat in, in Santa's lap in this department store chain's various stores was given a copy of this book. Well, a major publisher came to the CEO of the company and said, we want to take your book to the world. And he said, it's not my book. It's Bob May's book. They gave all rights back to Bob. And soon after World War II, Bob found himself with the best-selling children's book in the world. And that is when his new brother-in-law, Bob had remarried, came to him and said, we need to write a song about your book. And they sat down and they wrote a song. And Bing Crosby, the king of Christmas music, turned it down. Bob Hope, who desperately wanted a Christmas hit, turned it down. Dinah Shore, who charted over 420 times but is almost forgotten now because she never had a Christmas record, turned it down. Another singer-actor turned it down as well. But his wife heard the demo record and said, Gene Autry, you got to cut the song about the reindeer nobody will play with. And Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is the second biggest Christmas hit of all time following White Christmas. And this, when Barbara May, now 11 or 12 years old, heard Gene Autry sing that song, she heard her mother's personality come to life. I've always said that this particular song and the book that was behind it were born of one thing, a man not having enough money for a Christmas gift and trying to teach his daughter more about his mother her mother, and therefore he created something that cost him nothing but his talent and his work and gave his daughter a gift of love. And a gift, a gift of love comes magnified 
back magnified to the giver time and time again. That is the that is the the greatest message I've ever heard in a song that most people think is secular. Yeah, that's just fantastic. Uh, and, and and this represents Christmas. A gift given magnified with love came to us. And this gift magnified with love changed us. And certainly Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer uh, was a gift given with love. And yes, it came back magnified to the giver yeah. time and time again. By the way, Johnny Marks who wrote uh, Rudolph also gave us Holly Jolly Christmas and Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree. So nice. he was responsible for three monster hits. Wow. All right. Ace Collins is my guest. We're talking about the stories behind the great traditions of Christmas. We'll be right back. listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. So glad to have Ace Collins on the show. He's written a book called Stories Behind the Great Traditions of Christmas. And Ace, I'm always curious about the 12 days of Christmas. So there's a wonderful song out there about the 12 days of Christmas, but what's the tradition behind it? Uh, there's a lot of debate on that. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's a situation where you, you have certain sources online that will tell you that it, it is simply a nonsensical song that doesn't mean anything. I've had a lot of uh, people who were raised in the Catholic faith, who went to Catholic schools, who who were taught growing up that it was a song that was that Catholics used to share their faith at a time when Catholicism was was outlawed. In Great Britain, and I think it. I think because I know that it was used that way for years. I think there's a lot of validity in that. Um, I don't know now whether it was written as a, a a song that was a code song, or if it became a code song after it was written. I, I can't tell you that. But code songs were quite popular when it was written. Uh, many of the Negro spirituals were code songs um, that told when people when they were sung, they had a meaning that people were hearing them, like a number of songs like a Swing Low Sweet Chariot was was sung before someone tried to escape on the Underground Railroad and get across the Ohio River to, to freedom. So uh, I, I have no doubt in my mind that it was at least a code song for um, you know, to explain to people their faith. Written that way, who knows? But it it, it was a code song. And by the way, the the various things, and, you know, probably don't need to go through all of them here, because you can pick up the book and actually find out the stories behind what each one of those things meant. But, you know, it, it is fascinating to, to look at the various gifts of the 12th day of Christmas. You know, the partridge in a pear tree would represent Christ because the partridge would lay down its life for its nest. Um, true love gave to me two turtle doves. You know, the two turtle doves represented the Old and the New Testament. Um, three French hens, you know, and, and the partridge in a pear tree. All of them had specific meanings that were biblical in in what they said. And, and I think... The importance of of those meanings is something that we can embrace today that makes the nonsensical song nothing, um, 
you know, by the way, the three French hens were the were reserved for the very wealthiest of the wealthy. So they were very, very special. And they had spent so it's what would the wealthy symbolize if you were thinking about it? The three gifts of the wise men. You know, uh, you know, the four, then, you know, when you look at the uh, four calling birds, calling birds, they represented, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four gospels. Um, the the next, the five, were the book and the Torah, six geese a ling. You know, that sounds kind of comical, but to the Catholics at the time, that meant the world was created in six days because the egg represented creation. And, and to these people, uh, you know, the seven swans of swimming were the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Eight mil maids of milking. I found this very, very interesting because a milkmaid was considered the lowest job in in the employment so structure of that particular time in England. And, and those eight maids of milking uh, represent the poor, uh, those who are mourned, the meek, the hungry, the merciful, the pure of heart, the peacemaker, and the righteousness, those eight things. Um, the, the nine were the fruits of the Spirit. Ten lords of leaping, most people can guess that. You know, the, those were the Ten Commandments. Lords were, you know, lords were, were judges and things like that. Um, the eleven, um, you know, represent the disciples. People say, well, there were twelve disciples. No, 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 no. You know, one of the disciples sold Jesus out. So there were actually only 11 that took the message. And so when you look, those were the pipers piping, the 11 pipers piping. And the last thing uh, represented the Apostles' Creed, the 12 did. And, and so, you know, it's fascinating when you go back through and you look at it, you can actually read and see how those things were adapted to teach those elements of, uh, of faith to children during that time. Mm-hmm. Ace, let's talk about the traditions behind angels. Uh, you know, angels were obviously, you know, by the way, a, a little trivia that we'll get to when we talk next time on, on Hark the Herald Angels Sing. That was not written with that, with those uh, words. And Charles Wesley, who wrote the song, would be really hacked off if he found out they were changed to Hark the Herald's Angels Sing because he had, he, had, he had written it, Hark the Velkin Ring. What is Velkin? It's it's heavenly host. That's what Velkin means. And he, he knew that it was the heavenly host who were singing, not the angels. And so he would have been kind of upset. But if you think about it, angels, angels announced that Christ was coming. Angels announced that John would be trumpeting it. Angels were there at the birth of Christ. Angels are, are tied up in, in, in all of the important um, elements of Christ coming to earth. Um, including giving us the good news. So it's natural that they would be a part of the Christmas story and the Christmas season and therefore are important elements of of um, not just the the songs and the preaching and but also the the angels on the trees, the the way that we we look at angels throughout. Um, history, but I, I think if we hadn't had the angels that were a part of the Christmas story, I'm not sure that the angels would have been recognized the way that they're recognized in the Christmas faith right now. Um, you know, certainly the early Scandinavians and the and the Vikings, the first Christmas ornaments they put up uh, in their homes were were handmade straw angels. So the impact of of the of having angels 
tell God's good good news to common people and also watch over common people cannot be lost on what those early missionaries shared with people and, and the comfort they must have felt in having an angel watch out for them. Ace, it's such a delight. I know your December is as busy as can be because so many people want your time as you talk I, I, about I, these I, great I, traditions. I, I, I often tell people that only Santa is busier. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, but I, I love what I do. I, know and you I love do. Up a month of writing to be able to talk about what really is the most wonderful time of the year. Yeah, it really is. Thank you so much um, for being on the show. And I'm looking forward to later on this month, we're going to talk about the great uh, songs of Christmas and the stories behind those. So I'm looking forward to that as well. Have a we'll wonderful... Be talking, we'll be talking about, you know, God make you mighty, gentlemen, so people can wonder what that's about until they hear us next time. Oh, there's a cliffhanger. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot, Ace. Have a wonderful evening. You bet. You bet. Thank you, Ace Collins, has been my guest. His book is called Stories Behind the Great Traditions of Christmas, and this is a great book. You're going to love having this book, not only to read, but also to just maybe have it on your coffee table as people come over and they're going to go, what is that book about? And you can share a story. You can just read it and then tell them what it means because the traditions behind the great uh, stories of Christmas are really strong, and you'll you'll be glad that you can share with friends that come over. Uh, what's in Ace's book. So that wraps up our show for the day and for the week. Thank you for supporting Faith Radio. See you next week. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.